morning again. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. And uh, we'll be looking at verses 22 uh, all the way to the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 17, verses 22, all the way through the end of the chapter. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And the Word of God says, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, From strangers, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that they do not, uh, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Let's pray. Father. Thank you for this story that we have here, and I pray now that while it's very amusing and uh, amazing to think of, I pray that your spirit would illumine our minds so that we could understand it, so that we can put into practice what is being taught in this text. Father, I pray that we won't just leave here with just a review of a story, but that we will see and understand what you are communicating about yourself in this text, and that we can put that into um, practice every day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you would please uh, be seated. It's something interesting about, um, about emotions. Emotions fluctuate a lot. They, they just move a lot. And what's very interesting is that children, their, their emotions fluctuate a lot more than adults usually. Uh, children... Uh, Emotions will go, like I'm talking about uh, babies and toddlers and so forth, they'll go from super happy to, to this is the end of the world type deal. I mean, they'll, and it's just like that. And, and what's interesting about how they do this is that it's not just one time in a day that they'll do it, but it's like 20 or 40 times in a day. They go from this super happy to this like, ah, you know, it's like I'm dying, you know. And, and then, whether the baby needs a diaper change or whatever it might be, then all of a sudden they're like satisfied again, and, and they're like happy. And this fluctuation of emotion uh, indicates a, a lack of maturity, a lack of perspective for that person. Now, you don't, you don't tell a baby, just hold on five minutes and you'll get fed, you know. You, you don't do that, you know. You put everything aside and you feed the baby, or you know, say, well, you should not have wet yourself in the diaper, you know. Should have gone to the bathroom like every other adult. Now you're going to have to just sit in it, you know. You, you don't say that, but they lack the perspective to see what's going on, and so they demand their needs and that their needs be met. Uh, part of 
maturing is that uh, you start to have maturity, you, have, you start having perspective. Now, you might be listening about people's emotions fluctuating. You might think of somebody and you say, yeah, this person is not a child, but their emotions fluctuate like that quite a bit. That person might be you, right? Uh, where you can go in a day's time up and down, and it's just a roller coaster ride with that person. And the implication of that type of roller coaster ride is that there's a lack of maturity, there's a lack of perspective in the person. Now, what we've been seeing in chapter 17 is that over and over again, Jesus has been talking about how he is going to be, uh, he's going to be uh, taken, and he's going to die, and he's going to be risen. And Jesus has been hinting at this before. For example, uh, he's been talking about the sign of Jonah in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, and 16, verse 4. In those two passages, he uses the sign of Jonah, which is, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days and three nights. So he's been uh, drawing that uh, connection between what, jo what happened to Jonah and what is going to happen to him. And it's been kind of a hint. He's been talking about it, and really the disciples haven't really picked up on it until he just really declares, look, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the leaders, and then I'm going to be risen. Uh, and it introduces, it really introduces this paradox, the Christian paradox. Uh, what is a paradox? It's not two ducks, just in case you were wondering. A paradox is where two truths uh, are together, and they seem like they're opposite, that they cannot coexist together, but they do coexist. And that, the Christian paradox is that death leads to life. It's crazy. No, 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 no. Life leads to life. That's what it works. You have life, and you enjoy life, and you have more life, but the Christian paradox is that, that of the seed. Now, unless the seed goes into the ground and dies, it's not going to bear fruit. You're just going to have a seed. That, that's all you'll have. And in Christ, in Christ, we have this paradox that is through death that you end up having life. And we really revolt against that because it, it really goes against what we feel should be natural. But Jesus has been explaining this, and you remember how the first reaction when, P, when uh, Jesus just explains it and, and Peter takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. He said, no, this is not going to happen to you. We're going to make sure that you do not die. He rebukes Jesus. He says, let it never happen. Now, as we look in our text today, we're going to see that a simple world is hurtful. Uh, these aren't logical points that appear from the text. These are just points that you can write down and maybe it'll jog a memory later on. A sinful world is hurtful, and that's our first point. We see from verse 22 that uh, it says, and while they were gathering together, that word gathering is a, is a very rare word that we find in the New Testament. In fact, it only appears in one other place, and that's in Acts chapter 28, verse 3. In Acts chapter 28, verse 3, you remember the, the scene. It's where uh, Paul is being taken to Rome, and uh, he's on his way there, and they got shipwrecked. And all the people are there on the island, and he begins to gather sticks for a fire. You remember the scene? So 
if, if we look at that scene and kind of see how Luke is using this word for gathering, gathering is not something accidental. It's not something that you just casually happen, you know, it's not like you're just there talking and, oh, look, there's a crowd of us here. No, it's something very intentional that, that Paul was gathering sticks and here Jesus has gathered his disciples together. It's very intentional, it's very un, uh, purposeful to explain this truth that the Son of Man is going to be delivered. That word has this idea of not that he's going to deliver himself and present himself as I'm here, but rather that somebody is going to deliver him. And it's already indicating that in some aspect there's going to be somebody who's going to be a traitor. Now, the irony in this whole situation is, is quite remarkable. Uh, it's just fascinating to think because of the choice of words that is being used here by Jesus. The Son of Man, we've already gone through this where uh, the prophet Daniel spoke about the Ancient of Days and how there was one like the Son of Man who was going to come and he was going to have dominion over everything and he's going to establish a kingdom over the whole earth. That's where this title Son of Man comes in. But you have this Son of Man and he's being delivered. There's someone rebellious. Someone not submitting to the king. Someone who is exerting their, their will against the king. Can you imagine such a thing? The irony. The one who is king of kings, lord of lords, that someone's going to go against him. And sure enough, they're going to deliver him. And they're going to deliver him into the hands of men. They're going to hand him over into the hands of men. That's an interesting study to do, uh, to study out hands and how many times there's involved hands and touching and so forth in the Bible. We know that uh, God is spirit, so God does not have hands, uh, per se. We sometimes have expressions, figurative expressions, that God's mighty hand rescued them. But God doesn't have hands. He's spirit. But we know from different texts, for example, in the Psalms, Psalms 31, verse 15, it says, Many times uh, are, sorry, my times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. So from Psalm 31, verse 15, uh, his life is in the hands of God. And God will rescue David from the hands of his enemies. So we see God's hands, God's hands are involved in rescuing and delivering and protecting. Also, Psalm 32, verse 4, you know this uh, confession that happens, and he says, uh, Psalm 32, verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. So here we see that God's hand is involved in bringing conviction of the heart. His hand was heavy upon him. And this is also a deliverance because unless we understand that we are sinful, there's, there's no way we can repent, right? Left to our own self, we think we're pretty good. And if not, God had put his conviction. If, if God had not sent his spirit to convict us, we wouldn't know that we were done wrong. We wouldn't know that we're rebellious. So we see in just these two instances that God's hand, it really, whether it's being heavy upon us to convict us, or it's in delivering, both instances are involved with rescuing and giving life. Well, what do men's hands do? Well, it says there in verse 23, they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Wow, what a difference. What a contrast between God and 
being in the hands of men. Now, what effect did this have? The effect that it had is that they were uh, deeply grieved. They were deeply grieved. They were greatly saddened by what they heard. Here they hear this, that uh, Jesus is going to die. He's going to be delivered up. Someone's going to be a traitor. Someone's going to turn him in. They're going to deliver him. He's going to be killed. And this deeply grieves them. We can see a couple of points that maybe we can apply here. The first is that God is good and people are evil. Now, you're probably wondering who hurt me to have such a negative view on people, right? Like, <laughs> what happened? Did someone steal your toys as a kid that you had this, this pessimistic view? I mean, people are pretty much good. It's society that corrupts them. It's society, it's when they're in a bad school system. It's when they're in a bad HOA, they, they have no pool. That type of stuff builds people with animosity and anger in their lives. And, and that's what's the matter. But no, that's not the case at all. The fact of the matter is that we're all born sinners. And that sin is a corruption in us. We don't sin and become sinners. We are sinners. We're born sinners. And it presents a sharp contrast here. For example, Matthew chapter 8, verse 3. We see where there was this man, he had leprosy. And he comes to Jesus and he begs for healing. And Jesus touches him and he heals him. We also see in Matthew chapter 8, verse 15, where Peter's mother-in-law has a fever and she's deathly sick. And Jesus comes and touches her and she's healed. I'm not sure that was Peter's request. Uh, we would have to read the text again. But Jesus, when he is involved, he brings healing. Healing. And not only that, but you remember the two blind men in Matthew chapter 9, verse 29. There's these two blind men, and they are begging to have mercy, show compassion on us. And Jesus puts his hands on both of them, and they, they have sight. Their sight is restored. Or, or uh, you remember the, the official's daughter, Matthew 9.25, where uh, he said uh, she's just sleeping. And they all started laughing at her, and he asked them to leave, and he, he took her by the hand, and she was up and alive. What a contrast that we see with, with the men. Jesus brings healing, brings comfort, brings life. And what do the people do? Well, their hands are going to cause destruction. They're, they're going to kill him. They're going to have him in his hands, and he's going to be in a vulnerable situation, and they're going to kill him. And, and that's just the, the thing that we see. Now, we might want to put our confidence in people. We might see certain individuals and say, I can trust this guy, I can trust this lady, and we can try to maybe find hope in one another. I mean, we're built for community. We're built to have relationships. Oh, but when we live dependent on those relationships, they just let you down. They do. And, and it seems contrary, but putting your hope in God is where there's true life. What's God going to do with me? Where is He going to take me? What will be of my life? Where will I live? I guarantee you it will be better than putting your trust in men. Now, not only that, but we see a, a change of reaction. So we see God is good and people are evil, but we see a changed reaction. 
Uh, you remember the, the scene where Jesus says that he's going to be delivered up, he's going to suffer at the hands of the leaders, and he's going to die, and then he's going to be resurrected. And Peter takes Jesus aside, and he begins to rebuke him. And this, the word for rebuke is that same word that Jesus rebuked the sea to make it calm. So Jesus, Peter is using a strong terminology with Jesus and saying, No, this cannot happen. This, this cannot happen. Now, we fast forward some, some days and some hours, and, and we see that there's a change reaction. Because no longer is Jesus having to tell them, get away from me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. There's something that has changed within the disciples where they are grieved at the fact that someone is going to betray Jesus. They are grieved by the fact that he's going to die, but they're no longer standing in the way of God's will. It's a change in reaction. They're, they're changed, how they're reacting to this news. And, and that change is brought on by a perspective that they've seen the glorified Christ. They've heard the voice of God, and they know that this is the Son in whom He is well pleased. They have a certain maturity that they did not have before, and it changes the way that they react emotionally. They have a different perspective. They have a different maturity to them now. They are deeply grieved. And living in a sinful world hurts. There's people that come and they want to get married and they confess love to each other. And then one's unfaithful. And they say, I want to love you to good and bad and all, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of them doesn't hold up to that promise. We live in a sinful world and it's hurtful. Now, how do we take this so that we can have this change of perspective too? So that we're not falling apart each time we encounter bad news. And I think it's what we see in the next part, that believers, believers' relationship to God. It's understanding the believer's relationship to God that makes the difference so that we don't have fluctuating emotions that just go in a roller coaster like a toddler all day long. Uh, see, we see in verse 24, it says, when they came to Capernaum. Now, we've seen two movements in this text uh, that, that's important to just take a quick note of. The, the first uh, uh, movement happened that there were in Galilee. So the story kind of starts off where they're on the mountain, then they're at the base of the mountain, now they're at Galilee, and then now they're at Capernaum. And the point to highlight here is to understand that this is them walking and it would have taken a lot of time to walk down the mountain, to walk to get the area of Galilee, to walk to Capernaum. This, this isn't just automatically happening. It's not you know, disappearing and then appearing here and then disappearing and appearing in the other place. So there is a time frame that is elapsing that Matthew is not recording. He's deciding to pick and choose what he wants through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit but he's picking and choosing what to write because he has a theological message that he wants us to grasp. I, I would have been interested to know what the path was like. Was it, was it really rocky? Were there trees? Was it shady? What was the temperature? Was there clouds? Was anything else happening? What type of birds? Were there any birds migrating at the time? I would have, it, it doesn't say any of that stuff because it's giving a theological message and that theological message is that there's this elapse of time, but, but Matthew is wanting to put these stories together to convey a message, a theological message for us. 
So now we're in Capernaum. And uh, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter. And they said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? Uh, so there's the question. What's, what's going to happen here? Uh, commentators have tried to interpret what this tax is. Uh, and it's kind of uh, gone back and forth. The, the lesser of the opinions is that this is a Roman tax. Uh, there's not too many that, that hold to that. Uh, but those who hold to that would hold to it because he goes into talking about the kings of the earth. And so maybe he's talking about a Gentile-type tax. Rome is in charge, so maybe this is a Roman tax. It could be that. Those, uh, the one that's more popular is that this is the yearly tax that was taken up for the temple. And uh, there's more in favor of that, uh, especially since he goes into this whole thing about sonship and and the benefits and the privilege of being a son rather than a stranger. Uh, but here's a tax that's being collected, and they want to know, is, is Jesus going to pay it? Is your teacher going to pay it? And uh, Peter responds rather quickly. I mean, it's just a, a, it's just a statement. Yes, he, he is going to pay this. Uh, and then what's interesting is that it says, and when he came into the house. Now, there is something that happens between him saying, yeah, Jesus is going to pay it, and then he moves into the house. Maybe I'm putting too much into the text, because the text doesn't say this, so maybe I'm putting too much, maybe I'm using too much imagination, but if I was a disciple of Jesus, and, um, and they're asking for a tax, and I would say yes, uh, I would probably reach in my pocket if I had the money and I would pay, right? I mean, that seems kind of, and then settle with him later on, hey, man, I, I had to pay, you know, your tax, you know, uh, you want to pay me back, you know. I would have done that. that that's, that's something that would seem quite natural to do, but Peter doesn't do that, and it might be because he doesn't have the funds to do that. I mean, he's been traveling with Jesus. They've been to Jerusalem. They've been around Galilee several times. Uh, he's got people that work for him, but he's not working. He's not uh, collecting any money. And so maybe the change that he had has been disappearing. I mean, he's just been up the mountains seeing Christ transfigured, and they're coming back down. Maybe he just doesn't have the funds with him, and he left his credit card with his wife, and he just doesn't have the funds to pay it. And he's in a situation where he leaves them. He says, yes, Jesus is going to do it. But he takes off and he goes home. So now we have another movement that's happened. So from Galilee to Capernaum, now into Peter's house. But before Peter can really start to explain the situation, he says, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> there's this thing that they do here yearly. They, they collect a tax. and Yeah, yeah, funny thing, isn't it? Uh, you, you haven't paid yours. I just wanted you to know. Before he can start going into that conversation, which I bet is a very awkward conversation, Jesus jumps the gun, and he says, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? Have you ever contemplated this? Have you ever thought or supposed this scenario? Uh, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? Do they collect it from their sons or from strangers? 
And that word from strangers is not that they don't know the people, but it's those who are not their own. Do they collect it from their sons or from those who do not belong to them, who are not in a relationship with them? Those who do not belong to, therefore they're strangers. Who, who do they collect taxes from? Well, it would be kind of a silly thing to think that uh, a king is going to collect taxes from his own son, right? I mean, he's giving money to his son and then he's taking a percentage of it away. I mean, why not just give him less money and call it even, right? But it's kind of a silly thing to be thinking that you're going to be paying your son, giving him an allowance, and then taking part of that money away. That's kind of silly. And Peter identifies just the silliness of that, that a king would tax his own kids. And so he, well, obviously it's the strangers. Those who are not related to, those who are not his own, that's who are going to be collected taxes on. And Jesus says, uh, verse 26, then the sons are exempt which has this idea of being, um, uh, being free socially or politically from an obligation. They're, they're, no longer, they're, they're not obligated to do this. They have a certain benefit. They have a certain uh, privilege that they don't have to pay. This is something that they have. Being properly related to the king has a benefit that they don't have to pay the tax. So then he goes in and says... Um, goes into verse 27. But before we look at verse 27, there's a couple things I'd like to apply here. And the first is that Jesus used life to teach. Jesus used life to teach. He used a real-life situation, something that was happening. Jesus did not need Peter to come and tell him uh, what he had, uh, that the people had approached him about the tax. He He didn't need that. He already knew about that conversation. He didn't need Peter to come up to him and say, you know, uh, just to be honest, uh, I don't have it. You know, I would have paid yours, but I just didn't have the money, and uh, we got to pay the tax. He, he didn't need Peter to say that. He already knew that, and he used this life situation to teach Peter a lesson. And I think this is really interesting because most of the times when we're going through a bad situation, like a really bad situation, the first thing we want to do with that bad situation is forget it. Put it aside. Never contemplate it again. We're moving on to something else. I don't even see that problem anymore. But Jesus will use this problem, this situation, to teach him a lesson. And it's a very important lesson of how he is related to God. And that brings our second point, is that Peter is a son. He's not a stranger. Now this aspect of sonship is just a hint here. It's just a hint. It really gets developed in the epistles where, where Paul develops this idea of that we are adopted sons and daughters of God. It, it really gets explained clearer there than here. But here the, the window is just being cracked open. And this, this aspect that not only is Christ exempt from the temple tax, and that's the way I take it, because the temple tax is going for the temple, which is the temple of God, which Christ is the Son of God, and Peter is related to Christ, and therefore the Son of God, and they don't have to pay. They have that privilege, they have that benefit of being properly related to God. I think that's very important to think about. Your relationship with God should give you a new perspective on life. It should change the way you're thinking. Because 
Here Christ is related to God and God is going to allow him to die and suffer and yet he's not grieving and fighting against the will of God. There's a certain uh, levelness to Jesus even though he's walking towards the cross every day. And as Peter understands his proper relationship to the Father, it brings a new perspective, it brings a maturity to his life and a less fluctuating of emotions. Now, the third point that I'd like to look at here is God's provision for his family. God's provision for his family. And we see this in verse 27. It says, However, so that we do not offend them, he gives a purpose statement. The, the statement is, he does not want to offend. He says, go down to the sea, throw in a hook, take the fish that comes up, and then when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, take that and give it to them uh, for you and me. Now, I'm not, I'm not into fishing. I've only been a couple times fishing, and uh, I find it to be quite boring, to be honest. Uh, I got eaten up by mosquitoes. I was just throwing and losing hook after hook. And uh, I tried to talk to the guy that took me, and he told me to hush because I was going to scare the fish. I'm like, so basically, you're just standing out here being silent. And like, what's the point of this, you know? Um, but, but some people like it. Some people like it. And uh, Peter, he, he's an expert at fishing. I mean, that's, that's how he's been providing for an income. That's how he has been living his life, is through his small business of, of fishing. And, and he tells them to do this remarkable thing. I don't think anyone has ever told you to do this. To go down and cast a line, and out of what the first fish you get, you're going to find money. Can you imagine Peter? Fish don't have money. I mean, I know you're a carpenter. I know that's where you, you studied, and that's where you learned, and that's what you have been involved with. Um, but I'm an expert fisherman, and fish don't have money inside of them. It's just, they don't do that. That's just, just doesn't happen. Jesus says, go and do that. I, I think that there's some points here that, that we can apply as we look. The first is that Jesus does not purposely look to offend. Jesus does not purposely look to offend. Now, he, he has been offending people. I mean, he's been offending people a whole lot. There was a person that was crippled, uh, and he healed them on a Sabbath, and boy, did they get upset about that. I mean, they were just furious that he would heal somebody on a Sabbath. They, they, he, he should have respected their laws and, and just and, and, and waited till, till Sunday. Uh, he, there was other situations where, where he, uh, he did certain things. He allowed his disciples to pick the heads of grain, and eat them on a Sabbath. There's all these little things that Jesus did that it just irked the leadership. There weren't things that were bad. There were things that were right according to God, but it, it was just, but he wasn't doing intentionally to just irritate people. And I think that that's really important to think about as we think about um, uh, how we're supposed to live our life. You know, the gospel is rather offensive. It, it really is. If you go and you tell someone, you know, that th there's nothing that you can do on your own to somehow have a relationship with God. 
In fact, you have God's wrath upon you. And if you die in that situation, you will spend all of eternity in punishment for that rebellion against God. And, and there's nothing you can do. There's no change of lifestyle that you can do. You can't change your diet. There's nothing you can do that apart from trusting in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are condemned to hell for all eternity. It's an offensive message. And you tell that to somebody, and, and they get mad. And they say, no, I think I can. And you say, no, you can't. Boy, they really get mad after you do that. It's an offensive message. Now, as Christians, our message is offensive, but we don't have to be obnoxious. We don't have to be irritating towards people. Our message is sufficiently offensive that if you just say that, you can get a lot of people ticked off. You can get banned from Twitter and from Facebook just for that message. Let that message be what is offensive. Jesus he, he says, uh, the, I don't want to offend them, so we're going to go ahead and pay the tax. I, I have this benefit of being the son of God that I don't have to pay this tax, but I'm going to go ahead and do it to not be offensive. I think as Christians, we have all types of freedoms that we have in Christ, but we shouldn't use those to push people away. The, the gospel is sufficiently offensive that it will push people away. We should live as light and salt in our community. And when we preach this message, it will turn a lot of people away. It will. But we don't have to be living in a way that's obnoxious towards people. Another point that's pretty interesting to see here is that Jesus requires obedience. Jesus requires obedience. Why, why did Jesus not do... Have you seen that trick that they do at the, uh, at the birthday party? There's the magician there and he... And he's like, where's the coin? Where's the coin? Oh, and he comes up to the person. He goes from behind the ear. Oh, here's the coin. You know, why didn't he do that? What, why did he not do that to Peter? Just go up to him and say, where's the coin? Where's the little, oh, here's the tax money. No, he gives him this whole series of things to do. You got to go walk out to the sea. You got to uh, put the, 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 the string. I'm guessing it's string. <laughs> Uh, through the hook, and then you got to throw the hook out there, and then you got to wait till it bites. How long will it take to bite? Who knows what time of the day? I've heard that someday it's better to fish in the morning. Who knows what time it is right now? And he's there, and he's thinking, this is so crazy. This is so absurd. Who ever heard of pulling money out of a fish? What am I doing out here? Peter, what are you doing fishing in the afternoon? Um, trying to get money for the tax. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. That was quite the mountain experience you had with Jesus, wasn't it? Yep, it sure was. Can you imagine how absurd you would have to feel to be doing this? Knowing deep down inside that you're the expert. There's never been fish, uh, money inside a fish. That just doesn't happen. But for him to receive the blessing, he's got to obey Jesus. And he has to obey him fully. Many times we make ourselves to be the expert. Jesus was a single man. What does he know about marriage? I got this. I've been married. How many years have we been married, honey? 15, 15 years. I've been married 15. I'm an expert at marriage. 
what does Jesus know? I've been a father. I've been a father for 11 years, right? 11 years. I'm an expert of this thing of fathering. Jesus didn't have any sons, any daughters. I don't need to go ask him. And sometimes we will say, no, I've got the better perspective. Peter decided to put all his experience aside. All that he knew to be true, he put it all aside and obeyed. I tell you, that will be the hardest thing for you to do. Not only does Jesus require obedience, but Jesus cares for his own. He not only pays for his own tax, which is what he could have done. Jesus could have said, you go and fish the fish out, and you'll find two drachma and pay for my tax. But he also pays for Peter's tax. Now, just to be honest, I've never had somebody say, I want to pay for your taxes this year. I mean, I've, I've never had that happen. But Jesus took care of Peter. But it required obedience. As we look at, as we conclude this today, Christians must filter all their emotions through their familiar relationship to God. And by familiar, I'm not meaning that you know each other, but that you have a family relationship with God. See, it's, it's through understanding that you have that relationship with God. You have that family relationship with God is that it brings a maturity and it brings a perspective so that your emotions aren't fluctuating. What changed with the disciples? That they were grieved, but they weren't telling Jesus, no, never. Is that they were matured, they had a different perspective. Jesus explains to them, they're sons, they're daughters. They're in a relationship with the Father. And it changes how you live and how you react to circumstances. The question is, are you a child of God? I'm not asking if you know a bunch of Bible stories or if you memorize a bunch of verses. I'm saying, are you a child of God? Have you ever accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you ever taken what he did on the cross to be for you, for your sins, and put your faith on his work as the only thing that can save you? For those who have, the question is, are you living based on that relationship? Does that relationship inform how you're supposed to react? Or do you fluctuate all day long, up and down? Are you like what James says, these people who are unstable in all their ways, they're like, they're like the waves of the ocean, in and out all day long? Or do you have a stability because of you know of your familiar relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that uh, your spirit would convict our hearts. Father, if there's anyone here that has never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. Father, I pray that spirit would just show our need for a maturity and a new perspective through our relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.